Welcome to another episode of The Art of Outreach. My name is Mike Mitchell, and I am the art director of Mount Pleasant Schools in historically rural Mount Pleasant, Tennessee. I'm also the director of community outreach for the Tennessee Art Education Association. Today, I have a co-host, Adriana Cadena, who is an artist and student here in Nashville, Tennessee. And our guest today is the director of education for Dixon Gallery and Gardens in Memphis, Tennessee, Margarita Sandino. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Hi, thank you. So we always kind of get started about um, asking people like, why art education, right? So you've had a career both um, in and out of the U.S. with art education. I'm assuming that there were opportunities for you to take other avenues of investigation in your life, but you've stuck with art education. And so that's where we'd love to get started is why the passion for art education. Right. Um, so art education, I guess, is, uh, like you said, there's many paths. And I, I still, you know, have different areas that I work with, art education being one of the biggest ones that I do work with currently. Um, is that feedback back to them? You're a little annoyed. You said that that idea of it, you're practical, but when you're kind of, when you were at the museum, you started seeing that really experiential thing. Is that something for you because of practicality? Do you really need to see that hands-on, like why something matters? Is that, was that something that drew you to that? Yeah. 
in a specific or a broad way. I think that the possibilities uh, also in a very kind of stressful world that was back then, the 90s in Colombia, an art museum and artwork was a, a really great way of talking about things with students. Mm. You know, we're, we were looking at that point at artwork uh, and artists for spe from specific areas, depiction and art of violence, um, things, and at the, on the other side, things that would also kind of take your mind away of that, of, of the situation a little bit, which is also very beneficial and kind of blissful at points. You know, we, um, Colombians are very funny, so humor was huge in art, and I think that that was also kind of uh, something that drew me. Um, we had many challenges, a lot of the, I mean, you, you probably wouldn't believe this, but um, public education Colombia, of course, has many, many challenges, but one of the things that they do have is that they really, truly see the value in, in learning, and so taking a group to a museum was, you know, a given. Every school was doing it, if they could, afford, if the kids could afford the bus that was happening. So our education uh, was very limited for them, but when they did have an opportunity, the teachers knew that it was very, very important. Um, art education at that point for me was a learning, it was huge learning experience. Um, I learned a lot about Colombian artists. I learned a lot about art history. Um, I think I was very fortunate to learn that side of things because when I came to the United States, in the United States, the way they teach art history does not include Latin America or U.S. Latino art. Um, so I, I, I feel that at least I had that, that connection uh, that broadens a little bit more, um, that kind of uh, accepts the idea that Europe-centric Europe, Europe art is not all there is, which is what art history, and unfortunately, a lot of art teachers are still teaching, right? And so through museum work, because you're looking at other things, when you bring something to a museum and you bring a student or a teacher, you're like, well, look, this was also made at the same time as this was made. What do you think? You know, that kind of, um, kind of like moments of, oh, wait, <laughs> maybe that's not what, I, what it was. You know, it's, it's kind of like what I really enjoy of art education, not just with the students, but with the parents and the teachers. One of the things that you, there's a bunch of stuff you just said there, and I would love to definitely circle back to this because um, it's something that Adriana and I are specifically working on through our project with Tennessee State University and um, black artists in Nashville and looking at um, how those folks have not been centered often in art education in Tennessee. And it's something that she and I are working on with the art writing symposium and the faculty at Tennessee State University. So I definitely want to come back around to um, what you talked about, Latin art and Latinx art and how, you know, I went through my entire MFA program without knowing about artists who I've now found out about, right? So that means I went through K-12 in, in public school here in Nashville. It means I went to Austin P State University. It means I went to the University of Memphis. 
Um, and, and I know that those teachers couldn't have taught me everything, but the idea of that some of the, the work that I have kind of come across that, that that wouldn't have in some way, shape or form been able to put somewhere into that timeline. And so I definitely want to kind of come back to that. And Adriana may have her own questions about that. But one of the things that I was really fascinated by when you talked about Columbia and the idea that art was a way into and out of trauma for kids. Can you talk a little bit about was that a, was that for you a real awakening as a person, or you, had you already had an experience with art for yourself? You know, we talked to Bobby Negron from, who's an art teacher here in Nashville, who came to the U.S. didn't speak English, and she talked about how, you know, on this same podcast, and she talked about how art gave her a voice when she did not have a voice that anyone else understood, and. Was that something that was new to you, or did you learn that in the museum that it could it could be both a way into trauma, like hey, here's an easy way to start talking about this violence, but here's also an exit, like this is too intense. Let's talk about this humor that you talked about. Yeah. So I was, you know, as I was doing this, I was not really very aware that that was happening. You know, I was really pretty much living the moment. I was, you know, 24 years old, um, you know, in school, and the idea of going into a gallery with a group of kids and looking at something that they felt proud as Colombians because the National Museum at that point had that very kind of like, you know, nationalism kind of, you know, display in curatorial. Um, so having works of art and pieces that gave them hope that we were a united country, that, we, you know, we, that, you know, this, these were heroes and this is what we did and these are beautiful paintings of them and this is how and why they're depicted way um, was kind of important uh, but at the same time you know when I was there at the end of my stay there they were also bringing objects and pieces that reflected more the kind of like the, the violence that has been happening and you know things that belong to specific uh, guerrilla members or things that were meaningful in culture to the country um, you know I also I think that the, the idea that the museum, you know, the museum, the national, I don't know if you know what the museum, the National Museum of Colombia looks like. It is, it used to be a jail. So it's a panoptico. So it's, it's like a cross uh, of things and it's made out of a stone. And so it feels very sturdy and it feels very safe when you're there. So when you are during the 90s, um, you know, we, we just had been through all these bombs and things. It really felt like a safe place to be, physically. Um, it's kind of weird to say. I've never said this a lot, but it is how, how I see it. Um, I think the humor, you know, Colombians are very <laughs> full of humor. Uh, and in some of the paintings, um, you can see that. Um, you could also see the, the very European-centric displays. You could always see how the, oh, the Colombian Impressionists that went to Paris, here's the main wall versus the, here's the Colombian landscaper that, you know, depicts the peasants doing their work. You know, that has changed completely. If today you go to the National Museum that is led by the most wonderful educator, director in the world. Um, has turned around the collection and the 
create stories and to tell more um, the meaningful things behind them. Um, so we understand more the history, the art that connects us all as Colombians. So that museum, because it was very much identity-based, you know, um, had that um, kind of going for it and not going for it at the same time. You know, it was the two-sided things. Um, it was like any other museum created by, you know, very, you know, elitist people that were, you know, loved this and, and thought, you know, you know, this needs to happen, and they had been supported the same way. Um, but museums in Latin America are funded by governments. And so it, they change every year. Government changes, ministers change, the budget changes, your salary changes, and your plans go out the window. So it's a very difficult system to navigate. Um, they do have more corporate, you know, sponsor and specifically uh, people who are interested in the art itself so let's say I'm gonna sponsor this artist you know so that is, is is important and they're also very interested now in art ed you know it's like okay so if I sponsor this exhibit what is what is the program that you're gonna have around it you know how are you gonna interpret this how many people are gonna come you know what are the videos you're making about it how many tours so the art education side of things uh, is also now a very big part of how, uh, I would say this is in, in the world, how you're funding uh, art exhibit. Um, wow, each time I just get more and more questions. I'm so excited that you feel comfortable to tell us all this stuff. This is really fascinating. Um, and again, um, I am a, a product of a place that did not... Um, teach us a lot of a, a lot of those kinds of things I'm, I'm really curious about that idea that you know that its strength was its weakness and its weakness was its strength um, and this idea do you think that the the pride the the thing that you said it has going forward is that real like kind of in your face like this is about Colombia do you think that's because they just knew it was never going to go further than like that the America was just ignoring it that the, the what rest of Europe was ignoring it um, do you think it was that intentional, or do you think that it was about um, whatever government at the time was in place? I think it's a little bit of all of that. Uh, I think as far as the creating the shows or creating, you know, one thing is like your special shows that you create, you know, specific exhibitions, and one is your narrative throughout your permanent collection. So for the permanent collection, um, I think what we were seeing is, yes, and I would say this in the 90s, they were really doing a little bit more of highlighting uh, Colombian artists, Latin American artists. Um, but I, I, we're still seeing a lot of the, and in the collection itself, you could still see what they actually had as a collection. A lot of the artists that you know, went to France and, and came back and became impressionists or, or the artists that were, you know, labels would say, this artist is really cool because he was influenced by and then pop in European, right? We still do that. We still do that here in the United States as well. So that was happening. It's not surprising uh, considering that the only people at certain points in Latin American history that could actually have the opportunity to paint <laughs> were people who had money, right? 
to local artists, to young artists, to unknown artists. And I think the schools are also taking advantage of this. They're seeing that. They're seeing the museum as a space where you can go find out and interact with a living local artist that can tell you the craft, that can tell you the processes. So I think that that's very important when you have a museum also that's full of dead artists. I mean, that's a little bit more challenging. <laughs> we were just in our meeting before Adriana and I were talking about how um, I have been in school districts before that have given entire school years to focus on white European dead artists. And then when there is um, lesson plans about artists of color, it always smushes seven or eight of them into one lesson plan for one day. Yeah. And we were talking about how important it was when we were doing this lesson about um, this artist, William Bill Johnson, who is in Tennessee State's collection, is that we make sure that if we are mentioning other artists, that we're doing it as an extension, right? That we're not doing it as that they need to be in that top bar right. above to give him the, like, the, 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 that it somehow makes him valuable enough to be talked about. Like, he's valuable enough to be talked about. And then that might lead you to thinking about Kahinde Wiley, but it's not that you need Kahinde Wiley to, you know, think about that. And so, so anyway, I think that that's really fascinating how you talked about that is that there's this entire museum space that's working that way, right? The entire place that it's like the only reason this Colombian artist is valuable is that they were in Paris painting with this particular individual, not they're making really amazing impressionist work. Isn't that great? And I think that we, it's just really fascinating that, um, Adriana, do you have anything you'd like to add to that? Okay, cool. We'll just pop in whenever you feel comfortable. Let's switch gears a little bit. Um, Margarita, you um, obviously are really passionate about art and, and also the way that it is, the way that museums are used, how that power is leveraged. Um, what is your own kind of personal creative practice? Are you a maker? Are you a consumer? Like how do you, how does art and or creative, creativity kind of run through your personal life? Adriana, we've got breaking news here that we've breaking news that that the director of education is a knitter. Um, for those of you who are listening, you can't see Adriana and I, who identifies artist, are both shaking our head that like knitting. Yes, it is totally in the. It is we we are not snob okay. art snob slash against crafts. Like we think it's all in there. It's all part of part of the process. So well, you guys are educators, so mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> 
that's that is true. I think that there is possibly a little bit more grace there. Um, so you have um, an uh, like a respect for, and then also like as a practitioner, like you you understand the idea of making. When someone says this takes took me thirty hours, like you understand what that means because you are you do this thing that is definitely time based, right? Like you're making work that takes a while. This creative this creative thing. Um, so you talk to us about this edu this art educator now in Columbia at the museum there. Um, who you feel has transformed the space from a, a very different way. So you, it sounds like that's in some ways parallel to what your experience was. And I don't, I want to be really clear here. I'm not making any political connections between the Dixon or the Columbia, right? But the idea of coming to a space, and I lived in Memphis, so let me just speak about like what my experience was when I was at the Dixon I did not see many people of color there when I was at the Dixon, when I was on those grounds. Um, and so I know that that is something that they want to change as well, right? Like that wasn't something that the Dixon wants. And so, but when you have museums in a space in a city like Memphis that has had very, very complicated racial relations, right? Um, what is it like for you? What lessons did you learn from your experience in Columbia? And also it sounds like you continue to pay attention to that space. What are some of those lessons that you've learned um, to do some of that hard work that the Dixon wants you to do in getting more people, a, mo a more diverse group of people, and also just making it feel more open and accessible to everyone? Right. So I've been at, I've been at the Dixon this year 13 years. So when I came to the Dixon, uh, there really wasn't much diversity in any way. And I'm thinking, I'm talking board staff, collections, audiences, you name it. Since then, many, many, many things have changed. We are really on the right path. Um, I think we have a great director. I think we have a board that's listening. Um, I think there are things that are in motion that are definitely making things better. Um, the Dixon is completely different than what it was 13 years ago. The diversity, you, if we were in a pandemic, you would go to the Dixon on a given day. The diversity is completely different. We have, and by diversity, I'm not only meaning color of your skin or background. I'm talking ages. I'm talking disabilities. I'm talking um, means on who goes, you know, the, the connections are there now. It hasn't been easy. <laughs> it has been a really long process. Um, I think that the work that I did in Colombia inspired me because the work that I was doing in those museums really showed me that everyone, everyone, no matter who they are, can appreciate and will learn something when they go to a museum and they can enjoy themselves. You know, that idea that a museum is fun. Um, so trying to bring back that to Dixon, you know, when I came to the Dixon, they had just done a member survey and all, and the average member of the Dixon was 55 years old and was white. So, you know, the, today you look at membership and the biggest amount of memberships are family memberships. Um, you look at, a, at our outreach programs and numbers and how many students the Dixon sees with their art education program that goes into the schools, 
we see about 16,000 students every year providing our classes in the schools for free. Uh, we see them come back to our family days where we have 800 uh, families of all colors of Memphis uh, interacting together, making art and horticulture together. Um, so we have seen the changes so much so that you know people are starting to pay attention and kind of uh, supporting the Dixon in different ways. At last, uh, two years ago, we, almost two years ago, we opened uh, a new uh, 6,000 square feet education building with studios, uh, education garden, offices, all, all donated because of the importance of education in impacting the community in Memphis. So it's almost like a legacy of Hugo and Margaret Dixon. We need to continue this. So this one couple decided this is what we want to gift to the Dixon to continue. But if we hadn't done all the work before, if we hadn't, you know, changed the mindset of the audiences, changing the programming. I mean, if you look at the exhibitions, have changed completely. Um, the, you know, the efforts like diversity committees for the board and a couple of other things, I think that has been important. It is, it has been really hard. It has been so rewarding to see the change. It really has. And when I say it hasn't been easy, it has been like, you know, at one point it was just like me. <laughs> you know, and I, um, we have, uh, you know, we still fall, and I would say this, so if our director is listening, uh, for good or for bad, um, I have to tell you this, it, it really falls a lot on, into the staff of color, the brown staff, the black staff, the responsibility of changing diversity and in, in institution, and that shouldn't be the case. That's how it started, that's not how it's going. We're doing much, much better. Um, and when you work in arts, art education, artists, museum, you're there because you love it. Nothing else. <laughs> so, you know, you really have to be committed not only to the place that you're in, the, the, the people that you're helping, but also to who's around you. This is all about your community. So when I am asked, what do you need in a building? I say, I need entrances that I can go into when the museum's not open. I need after hours. I need access. I need signage. I need, you know, all of these things uh, that would create more, more of a community space than it's just an art studio, because that's easy to do, right? Um, so we were doing really good, and then the pandemic arrived. We're still doing good, but not inside the building. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's different things that have inspired me that I bring from me, with me from other museums. Uh, for example, the work I did at the Children's Museum um, really taught me about the school systems here in Memphis. You know, I, I understood better what the Memphis City Schools, the county schools, the Tennessee. Uh, so that was very interesting. I think um, it has changed a lot, too. <laughs> 
we are looking now uh, here in Memphis. If you're an educator, an art educator, museum educator in Memphis, you are currently working with about seven to nine different school systems. Because oh. we have all the municipalities decided to leave the county, which is in itself a race problem. So as the people providing program and providing experiences and curriculum, we have to work with all of them. Yeah. And we wouldn't love them. They just now work in a different <laughs> system. Yeah. yeah, and I, I, th I think one of the things that I really loved hearing there is that you, you talked about if your director's listening, but like you clearly are in a space where you know that's going to be okay if they do, right? Like, I mean, there's like, there, there's a part of it where you're like, I don't, I don't really need an extra email to, to respond to, but you're also like, it sounds like you're, I, 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 I tend to believe you that you're moving in the right, right direction. Cause I think a different conversation would have been like, Hey Mike, can you please edit out this part that I'm about to say, but I do want to say it out loud, you know? And so I think that's really great. But also I think the thing that I heard you say there that I, as a white man want to say to all of our arts educators who are listening to this podcast is that it is not the responsibility of black and brown people. It's not the responsibility of the LGBTQIA community to fix the art world that has been ignoring them for the last, you know, 30,000 years, right? Like it's not their job to fix it. It's the people who have the power to fix it. It is my job to collaborate with those folks. It is my job to figure out ways in which I can leverage my power and that access, right? And so I think that that's one of those things that is, was, is really interesting to kind of hear you say in such a lovely way about that you're also sounds like you love the Dixon, right? Like if you didn't, like you would not, it would not be, we do not, you know, like you're not going to, you could, you've, you've clearly been able to work at other places. You could work at another place, but when we find that traction, when we find that hard work paying off, right, it right. becomes really valuable because then you start asking all these other things, right? Like, and also I love that it sounds like the director and the board is starting to understand like, Hey, these these requests for access will never stop, right? Like, it's not like there's this like checklist of where we're like, cool, black and brown people are now okay with the Dixon, right? It's like, no, yeah. like, because you're going to be surprised by people who you've never met who don't feel that they've had access, right? So like right. folks who have disabilities are going to be like, you know, I've never been because y'all have never done this or that or like yeah. what, are, you know, and so I think that that's what's so wonderful about it is we ask those hard questions for others, not just ourselves, right? Like, because we know that we all have these kind of, these kinds of blinders on, right? When it comes to like how we yeah. get in, I wanted to talk to you about that idea of, can you tell us a little bit about the difference as the director of education that you feel is that outreach for you doesn't end with that, your ability to say, Hey, we've got 16,000 kids that come through the building, right? It sounds like used to, there are places, let's step out of the Dixon, let's step into other museums. Like when I was a kid in Nashville, it was let's take all of these kids, some of them black, some of them white, some of them Latinx. We're gonna take these kids and see this stuff that rich people are gonna lock behind doors, but we're gonna let them in and see it. And that's outreach, right? Like, hey, I can go and see a place that I'll never afford to be able to live. And what you are saying is like, hey, that's the beginning of a conversation right? And what I love about that, and I've never thought about it, I've never heard a director talk about 
gardens as horticulture, right? And horticulture is all about growing things. It's all about this long haul of I'm going to plant a seed and it's going to one day be beautiful, right? And so this idea of outreach of like, I'm going to have 16,000 kids come through the building. That's the seed. What will be interesting is will those kids feel like they can become part of the Dixon and become members one day, right? Right. Because that's when the flower blooms, right? Sure. Well, let me correct you on some numbers here. Or out, when I see outreach, you know, for you, outreach is you go out. For me, outreach is also I go out. So, sure. Uh, the outreach numbers that I give you, the numbers of the programming that I do inside the school. I got you. Thank you for that. The numbers of the, of the students that come to the Dixon are lower, mostly in Tennessee and Memphis because of transportation and because, as you all know, as our teachers, it is really difficult to get a field trip plan. Yep. Um, and I am and, uh, in Memphis, unfortunately, teachers fall into this comfortable thing of just going to the same place every year, right? So, oh, let's go to the zoo, which is great. The zoo is great. I'm not saying anything, but, you know, they're not – the amount of paperwork that it takes to change it out and do something else is so immense that they're like, okay, no, we're doing this again. Um, our numbers are still very good at the Dixon. I think that – when something that we do have at the Dixon that's really important is we have art and we have horticulture. And guess what? We combined it to so much. Whenever we do field trips, whenever we do workshops, classes, tours, we incorporate it too. There's so much connection there. Um, and we, we definitely see art and science as almost like this mush at points. They're like, you know, we're creating programs and like, wait, is that in our, no, is it a horticulture? Okay, whatever it is, let's just put it out there. <laughs> so, and so in that same way, we would love for our teachers and science teachers to work together in the schools and do stuff together. Um, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, but we do, we, we do definitely see, uh, you know, the value in, in other subjects within the art, right? I think artists, our teachers um, have been doing what all other teachers are asked to do now with project-based learning and et cetera. So our teachers already know the drill. So for an art teacher to go to a museum or a garden or a science center, it's easy peasy to find the connections to their curriculum versus the opposite. It's, it, it would take a little bit more, mm-hmm. I think. I'm on, I'm lucky. I'm on, I'm on a STEAM campus. So pre-K through 12, we just got our TSIN STEM certification, which is synonymous with science, technology, engineering, art, and math as STEAM. And it sounds like you guys are, have a really strong STEAM program there, probably even before people started using the acronym. Um, And you know, we don't really, we don't often call our programs STEAM because most of the programs we see these days are STEM and they leave out the Right. What are they doing for the A? The A is just for show. It's not really happening. So that you know terminology, um, it's it, that's the it's personal. Anybody hearing? Um, kind of, I I cringe at it a little bit. Not necessarily because the content of the other letters is not incredibly great, but I think that the A was just blocked in there sometimes um, to create more inclusivity that doesn't exist in right. many cases. 
Right. Um, Adriana, I wanted to ask you, as someone who is a student who's still like learning um, and being taught art, like how are some of these ideas about what Margarita is talking about? Like how are they hitting you as a student of art right now who's soon moving to college and maybe is going to dive into some of these things a little bit more, either through a museum practice or through an art practice or through an art education practice? I would say, um, I guess it gives me a bit of hope, I guess. Growing up, I, all my art classes, I'm very few in middle school. Um, all of them were focused around like white artists from Europe and stuff like that. And going into high school, all I knew was Picasso and anyone that you can just like buy any like socks or whatever, it has their art on it. And that's the art that everyone knows and that's super popular. And I guess I sort of like made it myself as a Latina to try to find more Latino artists that I've never heard of that um, so I could like connect more with my culture and my roots and like relate more to um, the older people in my family. Um, so I guess knowing that I see it a bit at the first and like I definitely see it a lot there. Um, but just knowing that it's not only the first, it's also other museums that are really like putting in the effort um, to like diversify what they're showing. Because whenever I go to a museum and I go, oh wait, that's a artist from like Venezuela or something like that, that always just, it, it feels like, oh, that's a little piece of who I could be in the future or someone who I know. And that it, it creates this special moment that usually you can't experience when there's just white artists all around you, which I just think is super cool for the future. And hopefully, like, maybe one day, like, every museum is just going to have a diverse volume of, of different um, yeah. art pieces and stuff. That's just so yeah. cool. I, I cannot tell you how much this forms my heart, and i tell you why. I am uh, on the board and have been chair the... Uh, what's called the Latino Network for the American Alliance of Museums, which is a huge organization, a national organization that accredits museums. And throughout the work that we've been doing through the Latino Network, we are about to launch a set, a document, which is a set of strategies on how to reach your Latinx community if you're a museum professional, or if you're a museum professional, what, you know, how, how to navigate certain things. If you are a museum that don't, don't understand much of this diversity thing or are trying to get to understand or get more Latinx audiences and museum professionals, these are a set of ideas on how to just do that. So who's saying all of this kind of fits right in. Uh, I think there, please know that there's a lot of work going on. There's this behind you. Think about this massive amount of Latinx uh, artists, museum professionals trying to lift you up so when you are actually in your workplace, you will have yourself represented. Adriana, thank you for sharing that. Um, and, I, and I think that it's, I think it's really important and I hope that educators who are, who are listening, um, you didn't see it. Adriana's smile when she talked about you could see it those times when she encountered work from people who 
like she said, and she pointed kind of at that spot we all point to when we mean me, right? And so she pointed at that spot and smiled about those moments when she could see herself not just in the work, but in the artist that made the work. Because we can say everything that we want to kids. We can tell every kid that we know that they can be anything that they want to be. But until they see somebody that looks like them, smells like them, talks like them, votes like them, and like is, is like, like who they are, they're not going to believe it. And then once they see that, they can then see themselves also in those other people, right? They can then feel a kinship to um, an artist that looks like me and go like, oh, I see. Oh, yeah, yeah. We can, we're talking the talk now. I get it. But like until they see, you know, and I think it's, I think it's, it's so valuable um, as art educators to understand that, you know, we have the latitude to change the textbook that other teachers don't have. Like in my art classroom when I taught, I didn't always have to have an art textbook, and I loved that because then I could put art in there, right, because I could change the text. And it was also important for the white students that I taught for them to see a different text, right, because all of the math books, all of the science books, all of those things, it literally takes like acts of state, legisla of state legislation to change those things, right? Like it actually takes an act of... The, the the Senate of Tennessee, like it literally takes an act of, of like a state to change that stuff. But in our classrooms, we have the power to change the textbook. We have the power of the Tennessee legislation in our hands to like change the way people think about artists. And I think that that's really powerful. I also think that they don't know that. And they probably, if they knew that, would probably tell us to cut it out. But I'm not, I, you know, I just think that that's really cool. So Adriana, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, one of the things, uh, Margarita, that you had said early on was that art education is one of the things that you were interested in. What other practices are you involved in Sure. And I would want to do, I would want to do that as the teacher and that, that idea of like, 
how interesting is it that what you're talking about is that this moment for the teachers would be an opportunity for wellness for them, for self-care for them, right? Not just they're herding cats to this space to look at stuff and then get them back on the bus. You're saying no, like that way it becomes a pro like you included the teacher in that outreach, right? Like they are part of that. And I also love that you talk about, um, you know, kind of K through nursing home, you know, yeah. art, right. As opposed to, I think we oftentimes say I'm a pre K 12 or I teach K four and, or at K college. Right. And I think that the idea of art education really is like from the yeah. beginning of our lives to the end of our lives, I was really lucky to live right next door about, I don't know, probably four or five miles from where the Dixon is. I lived right next door to Burton Calicott, the great Memphis painter who has the license, the rainbow license plate. And Burton was constantly thinking about art into his late nineties. He would, um, I was a graduate student at the university of Memphis and he found out that, and he asked me to bring work over to look at it. He wanted, yeah. he missed the critique, right? Like he missed the conversation and it was so cool. And he was so generous with that. And that idea of the only reason he quit making work was because he physically, like it just hurt his body, the kind of work that he made. So he started doing calligraphy and he started writing, he started writing poetry in his nineties. And so this idea of that we kind of give up on folks is so, is so strange. Like he wrote poetry in his nineties. So he had five years of writing poetry. Like that's a long time, right? Like five years of writing poetry. And of course his artistic practice positioned him to understand how to then have a practice, right? Oh, I'm going to write poetry. I'm going to write poetry every day. I'm going to write lots of poems. I'm going to share those poems. I'm going to get feedback from them. So I just love that idea of what you talked about is that your opportunity at the Dixon to like those 55 year old members are not people who know everything who are coming in. You have an opportunity even to rethink those folks and how that space wasn't about pushing them out, but like, enriching the way that they saw the Dixon as well, right? Because I bet that a lot of those folks went to the Dixon 20 times in a row and it was yeah. identical 20 times in a row. Right. Yeah. So the idea was that those folks would bring their entire family to do something else. Because definitely there's something, you know, our, our youngest program with Art Ed is 12 months old. Wow. Yeah. What do you and do? We what? Have, we, <laughs> yeah, we have meaning my And they look at scale, they look at shapes, color, uh, texture, um, social. So, I mean, we, we really try to get all the lives, you know, the life cycle. Uh, also, a cool thing that you would appreciate, you, I don't know if you know this, but we actually, the Dixon, in regular times, we do um, summer camp in the art department at the University of Memphis. So every summer, we take over the department and all their studios, and we bring... Students from Shelby County Schools in the neighborhood, 120 kids, and we provide camp for free. So that way, not only do they see themselves in a museum field trip, but they see themselves and their families at the university. Most of the kids are black kids and Latino kids, with a percentage of schools in the area to 45 to 48 Latinos and 50 to 55 black kids. So those are the kids that are coming. We get... Um, campus school, which is, of course, it's its own thing, uh, and then, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not even camp director, I'm a camp principal, I'm, <laughs> and, and I do go and talk to them, and I tell them, I'm not going to ask you to do really anything, you come from different schools, all of you, 
guess what? You all are neighbors. The one thing that I want you to do throughout this week is to find someone from a different school and make something with them. Make something together. Make sure that is the, the, the person you would never talk to if you saw them in your hallway. And they become friends. And, you know, in Memphis, there's this huge divide between the Latino population and the black population. And it is through artwork and making art that we can connect them. It's that young. There's a lot of racism going back and forth within those two cultures. So when you're a kid, if you go to a Memphis city school and you sit at a one, you see that the black kids sit with black kids, Latino kids with Latino kids. In order to change that, these are the spaces that you can organize them in a different way and then they'll have a good time with this other kid and be like hey i have this this friend that can't one time you know that's what we want and the the coercion there the, the glue there is art making and that's that's kind of what we really value for our parents um for students we actually hire high school students they're in um art programs to counselors and to help within that so there's also a mentorship uh, opportunity within that program um, with the art instructors which are usually our teachers in Memphis schools <laughs> um, so there's you know there's many ways but really that camp really helps us connect with our community and connect them a little bit even if it's for a week we know that out there somewhere somebody will say Wait, I remember I made some artwork with this kid, you know. And I, and I think that that's such a cool way to kind of, you know, kind of start to wind down our conversation is that when you were 24 working in those museums, you found that art was a way into and out of trauma, right? And right. and we know um, that, that that those racial divides between the Latinx community and the black community are is not their trauma. That is trauma that the white supremacy has also helped create right like and has helped fuel intentionally Absolutely. right and so that yeah. again here's an here's an, a, an example of like it is not you know those kids responsibility to fix that but 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 art can allow this opportunity out of that particular trauma that they didn't create right and so i, I just think that that's really again adriana talked about like the hope we're hearing in this conversation and on top of all the other wonderful stuff, you know, like I'm seeing Adriana shake her head is this idea of, you know, putting those kids in this in this space and then putting art in between them as initially a way, a way for them to kind of kind of figure out that bridge together. Right. And then they like you said, Margaritas, they then have this opportunity where it's like you can't undo that. Right. When they're in an environment and someone says something about black folks, they're like, I don't know if that's right. Because when I was at summer camp with the Dixon, right, like I, I made really cool things with, I had really, really great conversations. It felt just like friendship feels right. Like it can't be that that, and so I just think that that's really cool is that, that that's been a thread in your, um, in your art education, like profession is that, that art, like the into and out of, um, trauma, I want to finish up um, our conversation with gratefulness, right? So Adriana and I are certainly grateful to have gotten to have this conversation with you today, especially starting the new year off. Um, and uh, but I want to ask you a person, uh, object, and a person, and a place that you're grateful for right now. 
So let's start with a let's start with an object. And the object object can be up in there. It can be a Fitbit to a car or a painting. It can be anything that you want it to be. Okay, how about a, uh, a person? And before, I'll make sure to be protective. We've put you on the spot, so I'm sure that all your friends and family, that you're grateful for all of them, but you can live right in this immediate moment, again, with, with, with a person or persons. It's, to, it's up to you. Lakeisha Moore from TSU, she immediately broke the rules and asked if it could be more than one, and so I started opening the question up. So, so it can be right. more than one or one. How about a place? A place? Well, okay. So my obvious, of course, would be the Dixon, but that's too obvious. Um, so I'm, I'm going to say, again, this isn't immediate, a yard. I actually have a backyard that when I'm done with screen time, I go out and I tell my daughter to go outside and look at a bird. I'm really grateful that I have that option because a lot of people that I know that live in an apartment do not have that option. And I'm incredibly grateful that I can actually breathe air outside for a second and come back in and enjoy being outside. Um, so I, you know, very kind of lame things are like, yeah, but in, in the immediacy, I'm not very philosophical. I'm a very practical person. So I have to tell you that I this I've written down so many notes that we could have a whole separate episode um, because I want to ask you a million other questions and I want to hear your your thoughts on other things. Adriana, was there any questions that we missed? Is there one thing that really grabbed you um, during the conversation that you're going to kind of take forward with you? Um, you know, I know that you're. Are you out of pocket for a second? Is that is that the announcements? Are you okay? All right, so we're live here, y'all. This is we're gonna Adriana's at school, and they know that she's on the podcast. This is part of her uh, the process. So, well, 
Marguerite, we're so excited. We're so grateful for this conversation. It's been really, really, really awesome to hear what your perspective is. And I'm so proud of the work that you're doing at the Dixon. Um, I'm proud of any time an institution um, is willing to change, but I know that that change doesn't come from the building. It doesn't come from the property. It comes from the people that inhabit those spaces um, and the people that are willing to ask really hard questions. And then on top of that, once they know those difficult answers, then setting about to like, you know, putting on their hiking boots and walking up the mountain. Right. And it sounds like that that's what y'all have been doing there as a, as a staff is, is kind of walking up and knowing that it's a, it's a big one. It's a tall one. It's the tallest one that's ever existed. Right. And, but that's the wonderful thing about mountain climbing is that, you know, I've never done it except philosophically is that as long as you have your mountain climbing boots on and you know that that's where you're going, it's like, well, then that's what you're going to expect. And it's not like tightrope walking, right? Where you, when you fall, you have to start all over. You just slide backwards a little bit. And so I appreciate the mountain that y'all are climbing down there. Um, having a really fond place in my heart for Memphis, spending three years there in graduate school, um, and knowing that those institutions are such an integral part of a lot of people. Um, I now have gotten to meet a couple people who are in Shelby County Public Schools, so I know that they value what you all do and because it, it's always important to have those allies. So thank you so much for that work you do, and yeah. thank you for being on this episode of The Art of Outreach. Thank you so much for inviting me. Everybody just uh, keep being brave. Keep going. <laughs>